1: So you can connect with candidates faster, and listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com/history-extra. Just go to indeed.com/history-extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check.
0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Anglo-Saxon ruler Ethelstan was the first West Saxon king to effectively rule over all of England. And with Alfred the Great as a grandfather, he had quite the family legacy to live up to. In today's episode, Historian and broadcaster Michael Wood gives us the lowdown on this 10th century king in an interview that was also filmed as part of a new video series looking at monarchs through history. You can watch that video on our website now at historyextra.com forward slash video. Michael spoke to Rachel Dinning.
3: So, Michael, to start off, for anyone who doesn't know who Æthelstan is, can you give us a brief overview of who he was and what he achieved? Sure. Just a big question yeah, to start. I mean,
4: Athelstan is the, the grandson of Alfred the Great. Uh, the, and in a nutshell, Alfred resisted the Danes and consolidated a kingdom in Wessex. His son Edward forced the kingdom wider into East Anglia over the next 20 years, and Athelstan in 927 created the kingdom of all England. So he's the first king of all the English. That's his great claim to fame. Um, He was 30 before he became king, so he was already, by the standards of the time, a very experienced, oldish guy. You know, the reign was only 14 years, so he, he... died aged about 44, probably was never intended to be king. He came to the throne after the death of his father, then the death of his brother, and a year-long succession crisis. And it's a strange story in some ways, because the source material that actually tells us the story of his reign is very thin. And I'm sure that's part of the reason that Athelstan is not very well known today.
3: So the whole of Britain came to acknowledge Athelstan as ruler during the course of his reign and poets and chroniclers have hailed him as the king of the whole of Britain. Um, So how did he achieve this feat and what sort of challenges did he face?
4: Well, of course, that's the English version of the story and the Scots will tell a different version. He did claim on his coins and in his uh, land documents, his charters, to be Rex Totius Britanniae, the king of all Britain. But of course, in reality, he's king of the English Uh, really south of the Humber, but he's overlord of everyone else. And he only maintains his overlordship over the Scots and the Welsh and so on by force. You have to pay him tribute. You have to come down to the south and attend his court on the big festivals and give your allegiance to him. You have to give your son's hostage if you've done anything wrong. So it's the coercive arrangements of an overlord. That's what being the Lord of Britain meant. And then he enforced his allegiance, if you like, over the British Isles. So he, he, when we say he was the ruler of Britain, this is a imperial project, really. It's, it's coercive. He uses all the the tools of a, um, you know, forcing hostages and gift giving. And the, the the kings of Wales and Scotland and North Britain had to come and attend in his court and acknowledge him. You know, so it was a, an aggressive empire, if you put it that way. And it was founded on, on military force. Even in Northumbria, which was English, as it were, although a lot of Scandinavian settlement, they weren't keen on having rulers of the south over them. They said, "We've never been ruled by anybody from the south before Athelstan." You know, so uh, of course, some of them still feel that way today in Yorkshire. <laughs> but that's basically the, the pattern of the reign. But the. The big achievements were really in the law. He was a great lawgiver. In the organisation of England, England had been devastated by the Vikings, and a lot of the great monasteries had been destroyed, learning had been destroyed, manuscripts had been destroyed, and you can see that there's a very deliberate policy to try to restore. These things to f- restore the bishoprics, found new monasteries, enrich the old monasteries, repair them, and give them books and stuff like that, and he, also to, you know, to re-establish the great holy places with the English saints. You know, it was a very Christian society. He was a very Christian king. To us, extraordinarily superstitious, of course, but it was a, this is the early Middle Ages, and they believed that the, God, through his saints, had touched humanity through these places of uh, spiritual radioactivity, if you can put it that way. So Althusser was very keen on re-establishing the great shrines of the saints. Coinage, he was very big on the first national coinage. And culture, he seems to have, um, you know, he was a learned and literate king, and he seems to have sponsored manuscripts, cultural endeavours, there's a Tudor story, which is probably true, that William Tyndale tells, that Athelstan commissioned the first translation of the Gospels into English. So the overall achievement, when you look at it, you think that there is something really remarkable in this. And if we knew more about him, we might think that he was one of our greatest rulers.
3: Well, this is it. So you mentioned that we don't know that much about him because there's a lack of material. How do we piece together his story? How have you pieced it together?
4: (laughs) I started work on Athelstan in my teens and I I thought I'm going to write, there was no biography of Athelstan and I thought, right, I'm going to write the first biography of Athelstan. But the problems of the reign are so difficult that even if I hadn't had a career making films all over the world and therefore had to put these Athelstan projects on hold although books have come out on him since they've not solved some of the big questions that you ask you know so he is an enigmatic figure that said and you won't, I can hardly believe this but the rest is history podcast less than a year ago had a competition for the greatest british monarch and unbelievably the final was between Athelstan and Elizabeth I. Not the usual suspects, you know, not Victoria or William the Conqueror or Edward I. Athelstan and Elizabeth. And Athelstan won. And Tracy Borman said to me, almost kind of spluttering with indignation, oh, it's absolutely ridiculous. Of course Elizabeth should have won. And I said, Tracy, you know, I know she, she probably should have won too. I expected her to. You know, Elizabeth was an extraordinary person. Know, for a woman to be a great ruler and to have steered the country through such a dangerous time as the Reformation was, you know, uh, that was a really great achievement. But you look back I look back on the Alfred generation, you know, Alfred, his son and daughter, Athelflaed and Edward, and then Athelstan, and you think, what three generations of rulers had a bigger impact on the history of England, possibly even the history of Britain, but certainly England? Was theirs any less than, you know, Henry VIII and Mary and Elizabeth? I don't think it was, you know, because they laid down certain things, even though it was a small country, certain things about the nature of governance, the body politic, the, um, uh, you know, representative politics, you know, Athelstan's great assemblies are the, like the origin of the English parliament, you know, the coinage, the culture, the language. Even though they're a long time ago, and they're shadowy figures, their achievement was really extraordinary, you know.
3: And we can still feel some of that
4: Impact today. I think so. I think so. I did a a, a lecture at Westminster in the House of Commons not long ago on Athelstan's assemblies. You know, this idea of assembly politics that you, you gather people together from all over the country, you meet in one place, and you discuss the issues of state, you discuss the nature of the law. You know, should we change the law? Is this working? Is this not working? What's our policy to this and that? And they're doing it. And we've actually got the stenographers accounts of some of Athelstan's meetings and they're really interesting you know he's talking in the first person you know and the law and order was horrendous in the, in, in those times you know and he says uh, I'm sorry that the peace of the nation you know that law and order is kept so badly as as we can see is the case everywhere and my councillors say I've borne it for too long you know and then they improvise in relation to these debates and things like this they have a big issue about you know, the death penalty. They start off by being tough on crime and the causes of crime, you know, the death penalty. That's right.
3: I remember the death penalty was there for those under 13 at oh, one point. And de- I think Athelstan was the one to push yeah. that a little bit Well, it was, higher. Tw- it was
4: 12. Yeah, Twelve, it, was tw- tw- it. it was 12. And, and Athelstan, sends a message by Bishop Theodred, and the message says, the king has sent this message. It's too cruel that so many young people are being executed, as he sees it's happening everywhere, and we're going to raise the death penalty to 15 for three. And, And of course, we look at it today in the enlightened 21st century, and we say, oh, you know, well, they were tough, you know. But actually, eight, nine, and ten-year-old children could be executed in Dickens' time in the early nineteenth century for the theft of a sheep or something like that. That could happen. Certainly, nine and ten-year-olds. So uh, things aren't a straight progress from then until now, you know. So he's a v- very, very interesting guy. Tantalizing, though. I mean, I've studied him most of my life, and I, it's very hard to, you know, get to the these people of the past. I will say, you know, you when you study the past, you want to hear their voices of the people of the past and get to them like that. And just occasionally you can with somebody like Athelstan. With Alfred the Great, of of course you can. You've got Alfred's own writings and he speaks to you directly and, you know, no question. In my mind, he's the greatest British ruler. But Athelstan was remarkable. There's a, a very interesting remark by William of Malmesbury, who was a historian of 200 years after Athelstan's time. He was a Norman. He had a Norman father and an English mother. And uh, so he's like a generation or two after the Norman conquest. And he he says, well, the, the opinion of the ordinary man in the street, commonly held opinion about Athelstan in my day, 200 years on, is that nobody more learned in the law and more learned in Latin letters Nemo legalis vel literatius ever ruled the state. So there was still this common opinion in the twelfth century that Alzastan was this um interesting Carolingian style, I would say. You know, we use this word Carolingian being modeled after the successors of Charlemagne, Carolus. So the Carolingians were the great rulers of Francia, France in the in the ninth century. And the great Carolingian rulers modeled their kingship on things that have been worked out by f- the philosophers and the theologians and the idea that a king should be learned, you know, that you devote your kingship to, to a just society and you look after the poor and you do this. He, he's, Athelstan is England's Carolingian king, I think.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all.
2: That's better H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra.
3: Did he face opposition? Obviously, during his reign, he achieved huge amounts of, you know, he was conquering the north yeah. and those kind of mm. things. But how, like, what sort of opposition did he face?
4: Well, he had opposition within the royal house that even tried to stop him becoming king. And there's a story that uh, his enemies tried to blind him before the coronation, you know. So uh, he, and north of the Humber... The Northumbrians didn't want to be ruled by the Southern English, and of course, in Wales and Scotland and and other parts of Britain, they were vehemently hostile to it. At least, in parts of Wales, the Southern Welsh, uh, under Howell Dar, Howell the Good, the great Welsh lawmaker, he seems to have viewed Athelstan as a, you know, more as an ally, although he paid him tribute. Uh, he, they. Uh, You know, Hawaldar bought into Athelstan's project of this kind of empire of Britain, you know, but the northern kings, they, they resisted him fiercely.
3: Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you about the Battle of Brunenburg, which some describe as his greatest victory. Um, So what can you tell us about this? And I know you have some interesting views about the location of this battle. So firstly, what what was this battle about?
4: Well, it's a really great story, to be honest. I mean, uh, uh, you know, Athelstan ruled for about, after he'd conquered Northumbria, he ruled for about 10 years and instituted all these great uh, advancements in rulership and coinage and stuff like that. Very innovative, you know. When you look at the law codes, he's bombarding his councillors with ideas, you know, not all of them at work. So it's a really creative time for government. Then the Scots, for some reason, uh, break with him. And there's a war in 934, which is fairly swiftly, the order is is reinforced. But three years later, the scots have organized this huge coalition which includes the kings of north britain you know strathclyde in scotland the, the the vikings of the western isles ireland and the northumbrians and they invade northern england with this huge army and it's a very very famous battle was fought towards the end of that year in 937 at a place called brunanburh which means Bruna's Fort, if we've got it right. And this is very famous. It's in, you know, it's the centerpiece of a great Icelandic saga, Tolban Icelandic Sagaman. It's in Scottish and Pictish and Welsh and Irish sources, a great Anglo-Saxon poem, Latin poems. It was a great event of the era. And people looking back on this 40, 50, 60 years later, talk about it being, you know, the great event. A member of the royal family says, right up to the present day, um, 50 years on, the man in the street calls it the Great War. You know, so it was um, a massive event and shook Athelstan's empire. In a last-ditch battle, he, he defeated the coalition. And the great debate is, it's the most famous lost battle in British history, really, is where was Brunanburg? And people have argued for more than 300 years about where this place was. And the very strong opinion these days is it was in the Wirral, uh, where there is a place called Brombra, whose name, although it's later, much later than these events, could give you Brunos Fort. I think I can say, I've always been slightly shy of being forceful about this, but I think I can say there's, there's no chance whatsoever that this war took place in the Wirral. It's a completely uh, a red herring. All the sources suggest a different conclusion and when i had a look recently at the the i thought i'm going to leave no stone unturned and go back to the sources and i had a look again at the manuscript sources and of course the manuscript tradition uh, of of the the name there's a very strong likelihood that the spelling was a double n Brunnenburg, which means the fort by the spring not Bruna's fort it it's not the only reason why it can't be the wirral but if, obviously if that's correct if i'm correct that that's the original spelling then of course it can't be the wirral because that right. doesn't make it at all so i i'm pretty sure the war was fought on a uh, on the main roman road probably the great north road going down from northumbria into the five boroughs on the on the eastern side of the pennines But um, uh, it's a.
3: Have you received skepticism to that view? Well,
4: of course, uh, and especially by the Wirral, uh, the people who support the Wirral, and by people who've written books on it since I um, first wrote an article about this. But I, I haven't had any response since I published in an academic periodical in 2017. My thing on the manuscripts, and um, I think it's pretty much unarguable. You know, the, the manuscripts are what the manuscripts are. The, the amazing thing is that we've probably got the spelling wrong. Uh, you wouldn't think it's possible for such a tiny thing. Up until the famous edition of the poem on Brunambour in 1938, most editors denoted the double N spelling and indeed preferred it, some of them. Since this edition came out in 1938, which has been so influential, when Alice Campbell argued that the the, the original the A version of the Chronicle, to be technical, with a single n was must be the original. Everybody's accepted that, but wrongly because it's it's not the original, you know. And it was one of the reasons why I, th- I I never put my Athelstan book out, you know, either of my Athelstan books out, because I thought I can't put that put that book out until I'm, I've proved where Brunanburh was. It was such a famous event; it would be a real failure to publish a biography of Athelstan and not be able to understand what what happened in this this great war two years before he died. But I'm inching towards it now, Rachel. Nice. (laughs)
3: We'll look out for that in the near future.
4: Well, I I, I thought, uh, you know, 2025 is the 1100th anniversary of his coronation.
3: Seems appropriate, so nice I, anniversary. So I think, I'm, I think
4: I'm going to aim for, I'm going to aim for 2025 September.
3: Um, I'm going to come back to a point you made earlier about the Rest is History podcast and Ethelstan being voted, uh, was it the top monarch? Yeah. Um, the historian Tom Holland wrote in a feature for BBC History magazine a few years ago, the king who founded England has largely been forgotten, even by the English.
4: He, he perhaps hasn't been given the... the the credit that he's due. But, I mean, prior to that, I'd made two films for BBC Two about Athelstan. And, you know, a big book was published on Athelstan 12 years ago by Sarah Foote. So, I mean, not a biography, but a sort of series of studies. So um, I wouldn't say he'd been forgotten.
3: Sure, and that's coming back again to the sort of amount of evidence we have Mm, about him compared to maybe perhaps other monarchs.
4: You've got to construct the story out of very diffuse amount of sources, the manuscript sources, the letter, the, the contemporary uh, notes, you know, stuff in foreign sources. It's a, a picture that you can only build up by, by very careful sifting of all kinds of oddities and, mm-hmm. and also interpreting them in, a, you know, in an interesting way can you take them further by real scrutiny of the evidence? As I say, you know, I'd looked at the brunan question for many years off and on, and I'd written academic articles about it, but I hadn't gone back to the manuscripts and left no stone unturned. And it was only this recent controversy about it with a whole book written on the Wirral, which is complete fantasy, the book, you know, um, that I thought, just check, and of course, there it is.
3: Of course, most people will have heard of Alfred the Great, yeah. Athelstan's grandfather. Um, how does he stand up to his grandfather, if we, we're going to compare them? So we call Alfred great. Was Athelstan as great, would you say?
4: I think Alfred is, is the greatest British ruler. He would have won the Rest His History poll if he'd been a ruler of England, but the, the poll was for a ruler of England and he never ruled more than Wessex. You know. But he is a truly great figure. Not only his deeds in war and administration and fortress building and city founding, but his his learning, the translations that the seminar produced, which we can still read today with his he's an extraordinary, fascinating character, and I think his grandson, you know, was probably legitimate. He was probably sent off to be brought up by his, his aunt and a bit of a loner, cut out of the succession when his slightly younger brother, who was born to one of the queens and therefore born in the purple, as they said, you know, was, he was the designated heir. So Athelstan was kicked off the succession and uh, probably would have been chosen to be a sub-ruler in Mercia underneath the West Saxon king or something. And I think he adored his grandfather. There's just enough clues for you to see that uh, grandfather was this key figure to him. There's a great story William of Malmesbury tells, which comes from an early source, that when Athelstan, just before Alfred died in 899, so Athelstan could only have been about five, that King Alfred, in a little ceremony, gave Athelstan a scarlet cloak and a jeweled belt and a saxon sword and a scabbard in omen of a kingdom almost you see what i mean yes. he was his only grandson then and this was a ritual that you did in carolingian society with young princes you put them on a horse and gave them a little sword and everything and you showed them the via regia the royal path of kingship you know so um his grandfather had done this for him, maybe echoing grandfather's investiture by the Pope when he'd gone to Rome, with the, the, the insignia of a consul or something. Something like that. It's oh, lovely. And, and it's a very touching story for this little boy. And there is actually a poem survives in a manuscript connected with Athelstan's circle, which says t- to the little prince, you know, your name is Athelstan, the sovereign stone. You know, puns on his name, and. Uh, and one day, maybe you you're, you will fulfil the promise of your noble name. You know, so you get this. If I, if I were doing it as a novel, yes. th- th- these are the inciting incidents in which you see the little boy, by the the, the war weary granddad, gives him these things and says, y- "Live up to your name, my boy." You know, and that that's a very touching story. And I'm sure he he did revere his grandfather. In fact. There is a charter, a land document from 937, from before September 937, so it's before the Battle of Brunanburh, but probably maybe when the crisis was developing, and the the charter confirms the ownership of of land at Athelney, which was the island where Alfred had taken refuge in the worst moment, in his darkest hour in the battles with the Vikings. You know when he burnt the cakes and all that stuff, and the. Charter talks about for the, my soul and my grandfather's. It doesn't say it is father, but that's the place associated with granddad, where from where the resistance that saved England had had uh, originated. You know, and I, I've often wondered whether uh, Athelstan's mind was obviously on Athelney at that moment when he was facing this horrendous invasion. Uh, did he actually go to Athelney to the little church there that Alfred had founded and pray for his? Salvation and his soul and the fate of the nation and all that. Um, these are again, if it was a novel, if, a novel, if it was or a, movie, a novel, you, can, you definitely you have so him do it. That but the document is there, and it is a gift of land uh, to the monks in this tiny monastery on the little island in the Somerset Marshes in Athelney, where, yeah. where uh, Alfred had redeemed England.
3: And um, I guess my final question to you is, what is it about this area of history that's so fascinated you, the Anglo-Saxons?
4: It's just great. I mean, it's um, obviously uh, that period of the 9th, 10th century is a heroic age, and they saw themselves as heroic age. You know, they were fighting these battles against the of life and death against the Vikings. But it's fascinating as well, because of the, the riddles, the sources, you know, y- you can't construct a picture of the past without squeezing the evidence out of every single thing you know and uh, and it's always been interested as you know I'm you know I've just spent 10 years in china on, on and off you know I spent years in india there's uh, other places I have I've, I've almost obsessive interests in but this period of the anglo-saxons is is very very interesting and it's very formative you know you look at the period between the Romans and and the Norman Conquest and you think many of the things that made our culture what it is – the monarchy, the structure of the state, the shires, the law, the coinage, the language, the literature – so many of the things that their roots lie in that period. And how exactly they developed is the mystery. You know, how did these things emerge so that's what fascinates me I guess.
3: Lots to still keep picking away yeah. at. <laughs> well thank you so much for coming on it's been a pleasure to have you um, and if people back home want to learn more about the Anglo-Saxons and Ethelstan, you can visit historyextra.com
0: to do so. Thank you Michael for coming Thanks a lot. on. That was Michael Wood speaking with Rachel Dinning. To check out the video of this interview and other video content, head to historyextra.com forward slash video. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green.